Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.1, Dangerous Frontiers. Welcome, everybody, to the fourth season of the Political History of the United States. Before I introduce our new season, I will put out my standard disclaimer. If this is your first episode of the show, and you have decided to just cut out the colonies, I would strongly encourage you to listen to the three review episodes from last season. That way you have some clue of what I'm talking about. Really, though, if you want to get the most out of the show, you probably should head back and start from the very beginning. But either way, I'm glad to have you here. Where we left off last season, the colonists had been victorious over the French during the French and Indian War. The French had surrendered Canada, and at least in theory, our colonists were feeling pretty good about everything. Except, we know that these feelings are going to be fleeting. This season, we are picking up the story in 1760, and we'll wrap it up with the Treaty of Paris. When the season is complete, we will not be discussing the North American British colonies anymore. We are going to be talking about the United States. As it would turn out, immediately after the war, not everybody was celebrating the collapse of French Canada. Among those who were not happy about the situation were several Indian tribes. Today, we are going to examine the complaints of these tribes. These grievances would not be contained to mere grumblings either. When Pontiac, a chief in the Ottawa tribe, decided that he would not subject himself nor his tribe to British domination, he launched what would become a major rebellion against the British. Before we just jump into events here, I want to take a brief moment to give a rapid-fire summary of where we left off when discussing Indian affairs in the Ohio country. This is going to be a quick summary, mostly because we have already covered it pretty recently, over the course of episodes 3.35 and 3.36. After years of warfare along the Virginia and Pennsylvania frontiers, the colonists were eager to bring peace to the region. This task largely fell upon a few different groups, chiefly amongst them the Quakers, who had largely dropped out of Pennsylvania politics by this time, as well as Tidiaskung, a leader amongst the eastern Delaware tribes. Following their conference in 1758 at Easton, several key events occurred. First, Tidiaskung's power had been severely undercut by the Iroquois Confederacy, which was looking to reassert its authority. His fall from power did significant damage to the Quakers and took them down a notch as well. An agreement had been reached to look at the much-hated walking purchase. Though neither Pennsylvania nor the Iroquois were exactly itching for this to occur, so the motivation to actually do it and do it right was minimal. Pennsylvania, as a show of good faith, agreed to repudiate and renounce those suspect land deals that had been signed back during the Albany Congress years before. The real concession, however, by the British was an acknowledgement of tribal lands to the west of the Allegheny Mountains. This agreement gave the tribes in the region agency over their own lands. The effect of this was that no longer could the British expand west of the Allegheny Mountains and just settle on what they felt was uninhabited land. 
the local tribes, often through the Iroquois, would control the land that they lived on and their hunting grounds. In theory, at least, this should have created a delineating border between the British and the Indian lands. With everybody pleased with the agreement, French support along the frontiers quickly evaporated as tribes agreed to terms with the British. This brought an end to the French and Indian War along the Virginia and Pennsylvania frontiers. In the Royal Proclamation of 1763, the document that officially ended the French and Indian War, the British confirmed that the Allegheny Mountains were the border and forbid expansion to the west of the mountains by British colonists. Well, this agreement brought necessary relief to the British, who were able now to move north and focus on the collapse of Canada. It was always a tenuous peace. However, the British desperately wanted to secure Indian neutrality. The tribes were likewise aware of the direction that the winds were blowing and realized that the French may not be the best long-term bet. In the aftermath of the fall of Montreal, the British found themselves in control of a considerable amount of new forts that had been abandoned by the French in their surrender. For the British, the objective became consolidating their new holdings. Amherst sent Ranger Robert Rogers to take control of the newly ceded western forts. Rogers knew keenly that he was likely to encounter tribes on the expedition that were less than enthusiastic about the change in management. The last thing that Rogers wanted to do, therefore, was to inadvertently make things worse, and therefore made clear to his men that they were going on a peaceful mission to secure Indian cooperation and to reassure their likely rattled nerves. This was a mission to take control of western forts, the biggest being at Detroit, while spreading the news that the French had been defeated and that the British now controlled the region. Despite these expeditions, the focus of Rogers and company was to spread the word that while the British were now in charge, they wanted to revive and continue in economic relationships with the local tribes. This was not a small point, as for the Indian tribes as well as the British, trade was a core component of their greater relationships. We know that during a council at Detroit, with members of the Hurons, Ottawas, and Potawatomi, George Krogan, who had accompanied Rogers, was warned that while the tribes were eager to restore ties, that the British needed to tread carefully. Somewhat predictably, problems arose almost immediately. While the Treaty of Easton had been necessary, it left many crying foul as they had already established claims in the region west of the Alleghenies. Initially, the response to getting control over those violating the treaty had been harsh and was handled through military punishment. This, however, was seen as a usurpation of the colonial government's civil authority, which left the colonies loudly complaining. Jeffrey Amherst reluctantly agreed with this stance, arguing that the patents that were held prior to the signing of the treaty should be honored. Amherst would play it loose again with the treaty when he allowed the development of a portage road between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. The Senecas were very vocal in their protests over this, as it directly violated the Easton Treaty. However, Amherst just blew them off. The road had strategic value, and Amherst wanted to ensure that it was under his control. 
Finally, despite all the attempts to the opposite by the British and the Treaty of Easton, colonists were still finding their way west. Yes, it was, for the time being at least, at a somewhat slower pace. However, to the tribes along the Great Lakes in the Ohio country, that did little to improve their outlook on events. As conditions in the Ohio were beginning to deteriorate, elsewhere, Amherst was dealing with an ongoing Indian revolt with the Cherokees. Drain our series on the French and Indian War we spent little time considering anything going on to the south of Virginia. Largely, it is because there was just not that much going on to the south of Virginia. Spain joined the war so late that Florida never became the threat that it had been during the previous two wars in North America. There was no British action to march down to the Castillo de San Marcos this time around. For the Carolinas and Georgia, therefore, they were largely spared the brunt of the war. The western frontiers of South Carolina were dominated by the Cherokee, who had, until this point, enjoyed a pretty good relationship with the colonists. They frequently traded between each other, with the Cherokee also proving to be a valuable military ally. In fact, it is because of these good relations that things would begin to fall apart. Originally, the Cherokee had joined John Forbes on his expedition to regain Fort Duquesne. However, quickly they grew disenchanted with John Forbes as the campaign moved at a snail's pace. Annoyed with the lack of progress and generally not liking Forbes himself, the Cherokee decided that they had had enough and left to return south. For their troubles, they decided to hold on to those muskets that they had been provided. Unfortunately for the Cherokee, the march home proved to be daunting. Frontier settlers were edgy from years of violent confrontation and were not receptive to the well-armed Cherokee marching through their towns. This led to multiple violent encounters between the two groups. Making matters worse is that with the Cherokee up north to help Forbes, South Carolinian settlers had made use of the traditional Cherokee hunting grounds. In the process, they had so depleted the amount of available game to hunt that the Cherokee were now coming home to face a looming food shortage. Despite some attempts to cool down the rising temperature between the tribe and the colonists, as 1759 gave way to 1760, it became increasingly clear that cooler heads were not prevailing. Following a Cherokee attack on a frontier settlement resulting in some 30 British deaths, war became inevitable. South Carolina Governor Henry Littleton placed an embargo on all gunpowder being shipped to the Cherokees until such a point that the tribe would turn over the parties responsible for the attack to be dealt with by the colonial justice system. The Cherokee made a final attempt to prevent an outbreak of war and sent a delegation of more moderate chiefs to make at least one final try to stave off a conflict. Rather than negotiate, Littleton proceeded to arrest the entire delegation. Littleton, now playing hardball, marched said group of imprisoned chiefs to Fort Prince George, along with an army of militiamen, where they planned to meet with the Cherokee. The plan was to force everything immediately to a head, and then, when the Cherokee caved into British demands, present them with a gift of much-needed gunpowder and restore the peaceful relationships. 
unfortunately for everybody, Governor Littleton is about to badly misplay his hand. This tactic, as heavy-handed as it might seem, actually does work pretty well at the beginning. Although the Cherokee's most moderate chiefs were now in the custody of Littleton, they still agreed to turn over two men who had participated in the attack. To this olive branch, Littleton thanked the Cherokee, released a few of his captives, yet continued holding on to 22 of the men, until such a time that the Cherokee agreed to turn over an additional 22 men of their own, who had played a role in that frontier assault. This was never, ever going to happen. So, obviously, the Cherokee were not thrilled over this development, nor did they intend to just let it stand without a response. In February of 1760, a group of Cherokee broke into the fort in an attempt to spring those captured chiefs from custody. This, however, failed, forcing the rescue party to instead lay siege to Fort Prince George. What then ensued was a series of attacks by the Cherokee against the frontier settlements from Virginia down south towards Georgia. Likewise, skirmishes broke out up near the fort itself. In one such skirmish, the commanding officer, and don't worry about his name, was killed. The response to this is that the men inside Fort Prince George went ahead and killed the 22 Cherokee chiefs that they were holding in their custody. The interesting thing about all of this is that really, despite the ongoing war, neither side was really that interested in being in it. For South Carolina, they had already disbanded their provincial army, and the fighting was left up to the woefully unprepared militiamen. For the Cherokee, they found that none of the other tribes were terribly interested at that moment of having another war with the British, leaving them standing alone. The British made a more decisive move to end the war when a regiment of regulars under the command of Archibald Montgomery arrived to bring the situation under control. We will discuss where Amherst was mentally later on today, but suffice it to say that for right now, he had zero time for an Indian rebellion. Upon arrival, Montgomery marched out and began a series of devastating attacks against Cherokee villages. These attacks saw entire Indian villages burnt and destroyed, as well as hundreds killed and captured. Despite this, however, the Cherokee remained defiant and would defeat the British before they could reach Middletowns, a group of Indian villages. The British, having suffered over a hundred casualties, were forced to retreat, first to Fort Prince George, and then to Charleston, and then on to a boat back up to New York. Amherst would frame this as a great victory, hearkening back to months before when the British had destroyed those villages. But propaganda or not, the war was not over, and the regulars were sailing for New York. So, yeah, not a great look. Making matters worse, nearby Fort Loudoun was forced to surrender to Cherokee forces in early August. Though the Indians accepted the surrender and agreed to march the British captives back to the safety of Charleston, 
eight ways into the march, a slaughter would ensue, leaving at least 25 British dead. This was in direct retaliation for the 22 chiefs who had been slaughtered some months before. Following that, pretty much everybody had had enough fighting for one day and agreed to a ceasefire for the winter. During the ceasefire, the Indians would become weaker from a harsh winter, while the British would grow stronger as another regular army arrived, now under the command of James Grant. And if that name rings a bell, this is indeed the same James Grant who nearly blew up the Easton Conference when his men got ambushed during an ill-advised attempt to take Fort Duquesne. Grant's orders from Amherst were to make sure that this war was painful enough that this entire thing could be brought to a conclusion. Along with Grant was Henry Lawrence and a provincial army that, when combined with the regulars, numbered right around 2,800. And by the way, you probably should keep the name Henry Lawrence in the back of your mind. We are going to be spending some more time with him as the season moves forward. When the fighting resumed in 1761, the army under the control of Grant wound up meeting a force of approximately 1,000 Cherokee. The Cherokee, somewhat predictably at this point, attempted to ambush Grant's army. What followed was a several hours long battle. Although there was a surprisingly low number of casualties on both sides, the Cherokee did burn through the vast majority of the remaining ammunition and gunpowder. With the Cherokee having run out of supplies, Grant continued on, virtually unchecked, to Middletowns, that collection of villages we talked about a moment ago, where he burnt everything in sight while executing any Indian that he came across, women and children included. The Cherokee were in a bad place. A huge number of their villages had been destroyed. The burnt crops meant that there was a real risk of looming starvation coming the next winter and they had no gunpowder to meaningfully fight back. The rebellion was over. There was no way that they could carry it on anymore. In August of 1761, the Cherokee sued for peace. The peace saw prisoner exchanges and the Cherokee ceding some of their hunting lands near the lower towns. That collection of villages that Montgomery had burned back in 1760. However, really, Little in these treaties changed the situation dramatically from how it had been prior to the rebellion. The end of the Cherokee War had really given Jeffrey Amherst a lot to think about. He had quickly observed just how fast the other tribes had been willing to step in and assist in the downfall of the Cherokee. At least once it became apparent that the Cherokee were going to be defeated. He likewise noted that denying the Cherokee powder had effectively rendered them unable to fight back against the British. But really, even before the end of the Cherokee Rebellion, Amherst was dealing with several problems that were likely leading to a whole lot of headaches. Several of these problems were largely a byproduct of his own success. However, at the moment, that likely brought him little comfort. Montreal had surrendered on September 8, 1760, effectively ending the French and Indian War. However, as we know, the larger Seven Years' War was still grinding along. This left Amherst with two major problems. 
Wars are expensive to conduct. William Pitt had spent ridiculous amounts of money thus far on the war prior to his resignation in October 1761. Even with Pitt gone, though, the war was still not over and would continue on for another year and a half. With Spain joining the war with France in 1762, Britain was looking at a war that had already been wildly expensive, becoming even more so. War also takes a lot of men to go off and, you know, fight in the war. With Spain entering into the fray, it meant that the British focus now included Spanish holdings. Importantly for our story, it means that the British had set their sights on Havana. Both the problem of cost and the problem of needing more manpower really meant the same outcome for Amherst. With the North American theater of the war essentially wrapped up, money that had been flowing to North America was now directed elsewhere. Likewise, Amherst saw the regulars under his command ushered off to the Caribbean to fight the Spanish. Despite the war in North America being over, however, Amherst still had real concerns. The fall of Canada had left Amherst with a whole new set of problems. All of those abandoned French forts needed British garrisons, further stretching an already depleted army of Amherst's even thinner. Add on top of that a lack of funding from London, and Amherst was struggling to figure out just how to maintain his new spoils. Colonial governments provided little help for Amherst. With the money from Pitt's subsidies drying up, colonial assemblies had little incentive to send men out to help garrison distant forts. When the Cherokee Rebellion came in 1761, it just stretched an already thin Amherst that much thinner. However, with the victory over the Cherokee, Amherst saw at last a partial solution to two of his problems. It was not lost on Amherst that the real reason that the British had prevailed over the Cherokee is because the Cherokee had run out of ammunition and powder. The Cherokee had lost their ability to meaningfully fight back against the British. With Amherst seeking money-saving measures, he turned his attention to the lavish gifts that the British had traditionally provided to the Indian tribes. These gifts often included ammunition and gunpowder. If Amherst could discontinue the giving of gifts, not only would he save Britain money, but he would limit the ability for these tribes feeling aggrieved in the future to rebel against British domination. Not everybody thought that this was a great idea. William Johnson, for example, was very vocal that this was about a lot more than just giving stuff to the Indians, that it was a sign of respect. Johnson continued, even after Pontiac's rebellion had begun, to advocate for the continuation of gift-giving traditions, explaining to Amherst that the economic losses that come with war as a result of not giving gifts, will far eclipse the cost of the gifts in the first place. George Krogan outright stated that discontinuing the practice of giving gifts would lead to war. Critically, it is worth noting that Amherst's feelings regarding the giving of gifts 
were not in line with then-existing British imperial policy. The British back in London seemed to be cognizant of the role of gifts as a sign of respect, and indeed as a diplomatic necessity. Amherst's argument that it would save the empire money does not seem to be a view that was shared across the Atlantic, where the Board of Trade sided with the opinions of William Johnson on the matter more than that of Geoffrey Amherst. William Johnson, for his part, was busy attempting to secure peace by stoking the flames of rivalries between the tribes. At a Grand Council in Detroit during 1761, Johnson raised the Western tribes to what amounted to a co-equal status with the Iroquois Confederacy in their relationship with the British. This move was not designed to bring the British into conflict with the Iroquois, but was instead intended to pit the Iroquois against the Western tribes. The hope being that this would take pressure off the British and create a running battle for British favor. The problem for William Johnson is that neither the Western tribes nor the Iroquois fell for it. They understood exactly what Johnson was doing, and rather than dividing the two groups, Johnson had inadvertently pushed them closer together and simultaneously weakened both sets of relationships with the British. By the time we reach 1762, there were clear signs that the peace made in 1758 at Easton was crumbling. The British continued to push to place more forts along the frontier, while the Ohio tribes objected and denied them outright the permission to do so. George Krogan was concerned enough by the end of the year that he was warning officials back in Pennsylvania that the frontier tribes were actively beginning to make preparations for war. Amherst, however, demonstrated very little concern for the rapidly worsening situation. Much like Edward Braddock before him, he failed to understand the serious threat that the Native Americans posed to the frontiers of the colonies. Sure, Amherst was low on both men and money, but should such an uprising come, the well-trained British regulars, limited as though they may be in numbers, would have no problem getting a handle on the situation and making quick work of any hostilities. What we now have is a tinderbox that is just awaiting a spark to explode. You have tribes that are fed up over English encroachment onto their lands. Despite the peace reached at Easton, colonists continued to slide to the west. Forts being built to secure the frontiers attracted new settlers to the growing anger of those tribes. Amherst was doing himself no favors by doing little to stop or even discourage Western expansion, while at the same time disrespecting those same tribes by pulling back on the gift-giving traditions. Amherst is, of course, doing all of this when he lacked both the necessary men and money to deal with the growing crisis. Despite these shortages, however, Amherst failed to recognize the seriousness of his situation, as he managed to repeat many of the same mistakes that General Braddock had made years before. Throughout the rest of 1762, tensions remained high. However, at least things would temporarily stabilize. Obviously, nothing about anything going on was good. Relations were not improving, and if anything, were still slowly degrading. 
Despite that, however, there was not that spark that was going to cause the tinderbox to explode. At least not until 1763. There were a few driving factors that really got this rebellion kicked off. However, really, there are two things that I want to focus on. First, we are going to turn to the eastern frontier, and specifically the Wyoming Valley. Now, in full disclosure, it is events around Fort Detroit that are going to really be the official kickoff. But before I get there, I want to turn our attention back to the events in Pennsylvania, as it will explain so much of what is about to come. If you will recall, among the concessions at the Treaty of Easton in 1758, was that TDS Gung and his eastern Delaware would receive a protected tract of land and a village in the Wyoming Valley region of Pennsylvania. We discussed back in episode 3.36 that, promises aside, nobody was really actually eager to get around to building TDS Gung and company the promised reservation. The project had been handed over to the Iroquois, who pretty much said that they would get to it when they got to it. Tidiaskung, during the same period, would likewise become increasingly concerned with a steady stream of colonists pouring into what had been promised to him to be those protected lands. These colonists, the majority of which were coming from Connecticut, were equally annoyed by threats coming from the local tribes. Making matters worse was that the colonial governments did absolutely nothing to stop the flood of colonists from moving onto land protected under the Easton Treaty. Everybody pretty openly recognized the problem, however the motivation to do anything about it was just completely lacking. After nearly a year of bickering, things would come to a head on April 19, 1763. Early that morning, the Delaware village of Shamokin was lit on fire. Among those killed in the blaze were T.D.S. Kung himself. The initial blame was targeted towards the Iroquois, who were annoyed by T.D.S. Kung's refusal to get on board with Iroquois authority. Which, there is some truth to this. T.D.S. Kung had been a pebble in the shoe of the Iroquois for years now. However, according to historian David Dixon, whom we have relied on heavily today, this really does not fit the Iroquois' M.O. If they wanted TDS Gung dead, they would not have messed around with arson. They would have just come out and tomahawked him to death. The far more likely culprit, therefore, was the Connecticut colonists, annoyed at the Indian resistance along their settlements in the Wyoming Valley. The destruction of Shamakin would have dramatic results and, as Pontiac's rebellion spread, it would serve as the catalyst for the rebellion along the Pennsylvania frontier. While events in Shamakin are going to play a major role, really the beginning of Pontiac's rebellion started off at Fort Detroit, almost simultaneously to the events going on in the Wyoming Valley. The beginning of Pontiac's rebellion did not come from some massacre like we see in Shamakin. There was not some British attack on Pontiac's Ottawa tribe that launched it. In fact, the thing that pushed events over the edge was a result of peace. Specifically, news was reaching everyone that back in November, the Seven Years' War had officially ended. 
Pontiac and the other Ottawa chiefs were not at all thrilled about the news that the French were not coming back. With the stark realization now that the French were gone, and that the British were going to assert their dominion over them, many tribes realized that the only option was resistance. Fueled in part by a religious movement, under the direction of the Delaware Neolin, the growing sense among the Indians living around the Great Lakes is that the whites and the Indians were created separately, and that the Indians had adopted too many of the dangerous vices of the white man. What Neolin was preaching was abstinence from alcohol, something that had become an increasingly popular aim. However, Neolin also argued that the only way to survive was a complete separation between the Indians and the Europeans. No more trade, no more commerce, but a return to their more traditional ways. As early as 1761, Neolin preached that a war was coming. Now, of course, this was not exactly the most surprising news ever, since throughout 1761, everything was moving in that direction. However, these prophecies quickly grew in popularity and spread throughout the region. When you combined Neolin's preachings for a return to more ancient ways by abandoning trade with the Europeans, with the decision by Amherst to pull back on gift-giving, it makes sense why Neolin struck such a meaningful chord with the Indian tribes. Like it or not, they were going to be forced back to having to rely on their more ancient weapons, as Amherst was no longer willing to gift them with the gunpowder that they had grown dependent on. The decisions of Amherst were playing directly into the preachings of Neolin. On April 27, 1763, Pontiac held a meeting some 10 miles from Fort Detroit. Amongst the tribes represented were Pontiac's own Ottawa, Hurons, and Potawatomi's. During that meeting, he invoked the teachings of Neolin. In what was an eloquent speech, Pontiac told those gathered that they had to drive off your lands those dogs clothed in red, who will do you nothing but harm. Pontiac argued that British encroachment was not going to stop and that the only option was to remove the British from Detroit. By the end of this speech, the war that had been slowly building for the last two years was suddenly at hand with it now clear that the French were not coming back and that the Indians had no plans to be subordinate to the British, there were few options left. Keep in mind that all of this is going on just eight days after T.D.S. Gung's death. These two seemingly unrelated events would, in short order, merge as tribes in between the Wyoming Valley of Pennsylvania and Fort Detroit found themselves having to choose sides. It is important to mention that we should avoid generalizations here as well. There was not a single group of Ottawas or Hurons, but several tribes connected through mutual languages and trade. So while I'm discussing involvement from these tribes, I don't want to suggest that all the Ottawa tribes joined in the war, because they didn't. Rather, the decision to go to war against the British was on a smaller level with individual chiefs making the call. On May 1st, Pontiac and some 50 of his men would walk right into Fort Detroit under the guise of wanting to perform a ceremonial dance 
for Captain Donald Campbell. Sure enough, they did go ahead and perform the ceremonial dance. They also took the opportunity to do a detailed reconnaissance of the fort. At the end of the dance, he let Campbell know that he would be back soon to wrap up the ceremony. The plan was to return shortly thereafter with some 60 warriors, all carrying carefully concealed weapons. Pontiac would present a belt of wampum to Fort Commander Harry Gladwin, which would be the signal for his warriors to attack. This, however, never actually happened. Somebody had made Gladwin aware of what was about to go down, so that when Pontiac returned, the fort's garrison was armed and waiting. Pontiac, obviously very annoyed that his plans would have to change, quickly shifted gears to fringing ignorance on just why the entire British garrison was armed. Pontiac, realizing that his planned ambush would not happen, apologized for any confusion and let Gladwin know that he was going to leave for now, but that he would be back the next day and everybody could settle down and smoke the peace pipe together and hash out this obvious misunderstanding. The next day, May 9th, Pontiac returned to Fort Detroit, this time with several hundred warriors. Gladwin, who had spent the previous night getting the few artillery pieces he had into position, was not terribly interested in allowing Pontiac and several hundred warriors into the fort. Gladwin made the offer that a handful of men may come in, but for Pontiac, who was, you know, planning an ambush, this was not going to cut it. Pontiac, angry that his planned assault would not go as planned, returned to his village. After briefly regrouping, Pontiac and his warriors began moving back towards the fort, attacking the settlements along the way. Those who had chosen to remain in the settlement rather than move inside the safety of the fort were scalped. The warriors then surrounded Fort Detroit. The siege of Fort Detroit had begun. Pontiac's rebellion had begun. Next time, we are going to pick right up and move into the fighting of Pontiac's rebellion. Over the next three years, the British are once again going to find themselves locked in an Indian war that would engulf much of their frontiers. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as the fighting in Pontiac's Rebellion begins. <laughs>